afternoon. Uh, if I haven't gotten to meet you yet, my name is Aaron. I'm one of our pastors and preachers here at The Trails, and it's great to be gathering with you again and opening up God's Word together. Now, if you're newer with us, uh, as a church, we have been, as I mentioned a moment ago, walking through the book of Exodus together the last couple of months, and today we are wrapping up the very first part of our study. Uh, so the first 18 chapters are over, uh, and then we're going to take a little pause and do a three-week uh, series on uh, the resurrection of Christ, with it being Easter coming up and all. Uh, and then I, the plan is, I think, right back in, uh, part two, ding, ding. Uh, and as we get there, uh, we'll be in Exodus chapter 19, uh, and it, we, we, will, we come to this beautiful moment where uh, Israel is on Mount Sinai and begins to receive the law from God. Uh, it's this pivotal moment in the book of Exodus, actually all of the Pentateuch, where like all of the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, just kind of crescendo, uh, and time slows way down uh, all the way until like a couple of chapters into the book of Numbers, and they're just on this mountain for a couple of weeks, and then it kind of zooms up again. Uh, but that's where we will be going in the next couple of months, Lord willing. Um, and I, I don't know if you've ever been a part of a church that has walked through books of the Bible kind of verse by verse and line by line before, but I know that you were probably thinking when we first started uh, diving in that if you were going to preach line by line and verse by verse, you probably wouldn't do it in a book like Exodus, right? You're like, Matthew, maybe, Luke, John, Exodus. You're like, all right, man, I don't know how this is going to go. Uh, you, you might not think that there would be a lot of great gospel indicators, a lot of great things we can learn about the Lord and practically for us as God's people, how we ought to live. Uh, and yet you would have been wrong. Uh, praise God, you're wrong. Uh, it's been a great place for us actually as Christians to see that all of God's word, the Bible, all of it, Every jot and tittle of it has been given to us by God that we might know who he is, his character and his nature, and how he works in the world that he has created. And so the last couple of months, we've seen how God took the initiative in securing the salvation of Israel, that he saved them. He went into this foreign nation of Egypt where they were slaves and liberated them out of it. And how he gives them promises and how he always acts according to his covenants. He is a covenant-keeping, faithful God. And how with a mighty hand, God rescued them and redeemed him. And how they believed God and they covered the doorposts of their houses with the blood of the lamb. And as they did so, God's, God's judgment, his wrath against them passed over. And the firstborn lived and didn't die. There's been all these great things that we've seen as God has been taking unto himself Israel. And he's been making himself known not just to Israel, but to Egypt and to Pharaoh and into the nations, and by extension, you and I. So Exodus has been a great study. Uh, and if you've been with us a while, you can attest that this is true, that all of Scripture indeed is profitable for us, and that every story, as Sally Lloyd-Jones writes in her children's book, that every story whispers the name of Jesus. And sometimes, as we've seen over the last couple of months, that whisper is a loud whisper. It's like screaming at you almost. Uh, and other times it's barely distinguishable at first. You read something and you're like, I don't know what in the world this has to do with the gospel. I don't know why this is in the Bible. And you study a little bit more and you're like, oh, that's why. That makes a lot more sense. And so throughout our study, we've seen that, that our story as Christians is strikingly similar to Israel's story. That we also have been redeemed from slavery to sin and liberated to God by the precious blood of Jesus, our Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thus, tying our faith to the faith of those who have gone before us. That the covenant-keeping God of Israel is a covenant-keeping God of you, brother and sister. 
which has been a cool thing to see. One pastor, uh, A.W. Pink, he explains it like this. He says, Israel, in moaning in bondage, pictures the sinner in his misery, that we are in bondage to sin, Satan and death, and we need God to save us. And then as Israel is delivered from cruel taskmasters, this speaks of our redemption, how we have been redeemed as well. And then their journey throughout the wilderness points to the path of faith and trial, which we are called to walk. And I couldn't explain it better, so I just quoted him. But that's also what 1 Corinthians 10, you can just read 1 Corinthians 10 and you see, oh, this is exactly true. And so on and on we could go with all the surprising lessons we've learned from the book of Exodus, but we have a lot of texts to go through today. And so uh, all this to say that I pray that the first part of our study has been incredibly beneficial to you, that's reminded you of the faithfulness of God throughout the ages, and that as a result of studying God's word, that you actually have a greater confidence, a greater confidence in God, a greater confidence in his word, that God has been faithful throughout the ages. And that this greater confidence in the God who has rescued and redeemed you from being a slave to sin and to unrighteousness is the same God that saved Israel from slavery by his strong arm and redeemed them. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So this week, we're going to be covering Exodus chapter 17, verse 8, all the way to 1827. So the rest of 17 and all of 18. And as we do, we're going to split our text into three major groupings. Now, your Bible doesn't do this exactly, but uh, you can see where we're going to go as we go. So the first thing that we will see is Exodus chapter 17, verse 8 to 16. So the rest of Exodus 17. And we'll see there Israel's first battle, or as your Bible might say, Israel defeats Amalek. This should be God defeats Amalek, but... That's fine. Um, And that'll finish off chapter 17. Then we'll look at the first half of Exodus chapter 18, verses 1 to 12. And as we do so, we'll begin to see actually how Exodus 9, 16 is fulfilled. In in Exodus 9, 16, God tells Pharaoh through the mouth of Moses that all these judgments that are coming upon Egypt that, uh, that, that tell actually of God's salvation of Israel from slavery that all of them have been specifically ordained, planned, and engineered by God so that God's name might be proclaimed into all the earth. And so today we're gonna see how one man hears about the mighty works of God and believes upon God, worships him as the God above all gods, which is the exact outcome that God has ordained for this entire redemption series to accomplish, to make himself known so that Israel, Egypt, and the nations of the world might know there is only one true and living God and all other gods are worthless idols in comparison. They are demons trying to rob the worship of the only true and living God. So we'll see a glimmer of hope today uh, that this is beginning to unfold, that the nations will come and believe upon Christ Jesus eventually. And then we'll finish chapter 18 by seeing how Moses' father-in-law gives him some wisdom on how to better lead God's people and how Moses took his father-in-law's advice now, if you are a father-in-law, you should write down Exodus 18, 24. So that uh, next time you want to impart some wisdom to your son-in-law, you have a verse. So write it down. Uh, write it down. And if you uh, have a father-in-law, just don't point it out to him. Uh, don't, don't do it. So let's pray. Uh, and then we'll, unless your father-in-law is here. Mine isn't at this moment. Praise God. No, just kidding. He's a great guy. Uh, he's a great guy. I'll tell him about this at dinner later. All right. So uh, let's pray and then we'll dive in. So Father, I, I do want to thank you for your word. God, we thank you for how your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that your word makes us wise for salvation and is also profiting us here in this life, that we might grow in godliness and wisdom and the fear of you. So I pray that as we walk through your word today, that you would use it in our lives. God, that you would convict us of sin and convince us of the truth of Jesus so that we might repent and believe upon Jesus and and give our lives to making him known. 
And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as I mentioned, the first portion of scripture that we're gonna be talking about today is Israel's first battle. And we're gonna spend a lot of time on the first battle. So if we get done with, with chapter 17 and you're like, bro, how much longer are you going? Uh, I was told last week to keep preaching, so I might just go forever. Uh, so I don't know, we'll see. <laughs> and as we remember uh, from our study uh, so far in the book, when Israel left Egypt, they did no battling in order to liberate themselves, right? What did they do? Nothing. They just were slaves. Uh, they didn't pick up a sword. They did nothing to contribute to God's salvation of them. No, God alone fought for them and liberated them as his people. But when they left, do you remember Exodus chapter 13, verse 18? They did so equipped for battle. But we know that it was God who graciously led them. And where did he first lead them? Into battle? No. He didn't. He didn't lead them into the land of the Philistines because he knew if I first lead you into battle, you're going to just get discouraged and say, oh, I'm going back to Egypt. And so he, he didn't do that at first. Instead, he led them uh, and told them to camp out right next to a beautiful Red Sea. But as they were camped out there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, said, I'm going to go back after those guys and get them. And when you see why in God's word, it's because God had one more mighty miracle he wanted to accomplish against Egypt. And so as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, got all his chariots and comes after them, God once again fought for them, but in a really miraculous way. God told Moses to lift up his staff and to stretch out his hand over the Red Sea and that God would divide the waters and Israel would walk through on dry ground, which they did, that God made a way where there seemed to be no way. And he baptized them in those waters. And then Moses was told to stretch out his hand again and the divided waters would come crashing down on all those Egyptian armies that had chased them into this big wall, walled water dry highway through the Red Sea Road. And every step of the story, Israel in this has been a bystander, haven't they? Like, what have they done? They're just there crying out to the Lord, help me. And the Lord's like, I got you. That's all that we've seen over and over again until today. Today, they are going to be attacked, unprovoked, attacked. And that's what we see. So let's look together at chapter 17, verse 8. And and as we begin to open that up, we see that Israel is in the exact same place we left them last week, in a city called Rephidim. Do you remember what that word means? Rest. I love it. They're in this place called rest, refreshing themselves. And all of a sudden, bam, they get get knocked. So like, they remember, they, they get to this land of rest, and there's no water. And they're like, where's the water? And God does provide water. And then they're in this place of rest. And then an army comes. And you're like, man, come on. Uh, this doesn't sound like a restful, a restful space. Until we realize that God actually is orchestrating all of us to demonstrate that he is their rest, which is beautiful. So we read in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And so we might assume that place would need a new name. But as we'll see in a moment, it doesn't. And Amalek, if you are newer to the Bible, uh, Amalek is actually the grandson of Esau. Now, if your uh, recollection on the book of Genesis is a little fuzzy, uh, if you've slept a little, little while since you've read the book of Genesis, let me give you a Coles Notes version, all right, uh, of who this guy is and why it's important. So uh, Abraham, you know, Father Abraham, many sons, many sons. That's right. That guy, Abraham, had a son named Isaac. Isaac had twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, if we remember, he was both a great chef 
and a great actor. Uh, He swindled his brother out of his birthright because he made a really mean pot of stew. Uh, And then he was a great actor because as his dad Isaac was about to die, he dressed up in his brother's clothing, put wool, uh, like sheep wool, on his his arms. I guess his brother was a very hairy dude. Uh, and, And tricked his dad into thinking that he was his brother. And so he stole his brother's blessing. And as a result of that, Esau really wanted to kill Jacob. So badly he hatched this plan. I'm going to kill you. The the plan came out and Jacob ran off and he went to go spend time with his uncle Laban. Where we know, remember, he got tricked into marrying Leah when he wanted to marry Rachel. Swindled in the middle of the night. And then uh, he had to work another seven years in order to also have the other sister who he really wanted to marry, Rachel, as his wife. So Genesis chapter 33, Jacob says, I'm ready to go back to the promised land. My uncle is kind of a jerk. I'm ready to be done with him. Uh, I'm going to go back home now. It begins this long journey. And in Genesis chapter 33, he comes back home near the promised land. But en route, Esau, his brother, comes with a whole army of guys and he meets him and it terrifies Jacob. Jacob is like, he's going to kill me. This is it. I I have shamed him. And in this shame, honor society, he's just going to come. Bam, I'm going to be at my whole family, all my flock, he's going to murder us all. It's going to be terrible. But in that moment, we actually see a beautiful moment of reconciliation between Jacob and Esau, where uh, they reconcile together. But you can imagine that there would be pretty bad blood in the generations that followed, and that's exactly what we see. So Amalek is the grandson of Esau, and the nation of Israel comes from Jacob. So when we see here that, the, uh, that, the, uh, that Amalek or the Amalekites, they come and they attack Israel, this is actually their long lost cousins. And notice they are the ones who ride upon and attack the Israelites. They are the ones that start this battle. So the Amalekites, they find Israel at Rephidim and they engage in war with them. And then verse nine, Moses said to Joshua, Now, by the way, this is the very first time that we are seeing Joshua mentioned in the Bible, and we are told nothing about him other than that his name. But he will become one of the most uh, most important figures uh, in the storyline here of bringing God's people into the promised land. In fact, he will write a book of the Old Testament that bears his name. And that what is significant here, though, is that nothing about him is told to us except his name. That's it. And the name Joshua, consequently, means the salvation of the Lord or Yahweh is my salvation, or Jehovah is my salvation. So as we're walking into, Moses is kind of setting the scene for us and letting us know right from the very beginning, these Amalekites, these, these angry cousins that are like Saskatchewan people, they're coming over, they're going to get us. And as they're, as they're, as these, as they're coming, uh, we need to know there is a salvation from the Lord. So the salvation of the Lord is with them. So, uh, unprovoked battle scene. I didn't think that would get as much of a laugh as it did. That was great. Uh, so, uh, so, right out of the gate, we need to remember that God is the one who fights for his people. He has saved them from Egypt. He'll continue to go before them as his people and provide for them as they remain faithful to his laws. So, Moses calls young Joshua. He says, all right, Joshua, these guys are attacking us. Here's the plan. Let's look at this next. Or Yeah, here it is. Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow, I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, maybe it's just me. This doesn't sound like a well-thought-out plan, right? Like, no military leader would have this plan. What are you going to do? We're going to go out there, and we're going to fight. Military strategy? Nope. Nope. We're just going, fighting. 
This is, this is all over told. Not only that, but we also aren't told how Joshua is supposed to choose these men to go fight. There are over two plus million Israelites in the wilderness. Like all of the men, some of the men, I'm supposed to choose. So not that guy, but this guy, like how do I, I don't know. I don't know what to do, man. Like not a lot of good information is going on here for us in this pretty much because that's not the point. But uh, one of the things we also need to think about in this is that Joshua has never led anyone into battle ever. He's never fought a war. He knows no battle tactics. And yet he is supposed to lead these men out to fight, which sounds like a crazy plan. And then Moses is just going to go stand on the hill with a staff. And you're like, all right, here we go. Uh, But I think in that, Moses going on the hill with the staff of the Lord actually gives us their battle plan. They realize they have nothing good to bring to the table, but they have the staff of God and God is the one who goes before them and fights for them. And so they're like, we're going to throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Here we go. Uh, If you've ever been a parent, you know what that's like. You just, here we are. And now in our study, what we tried to do in this as well is we've tried to note how the staff of Moses has been, has been called various names in various different places as we walk through scripture. And it gives us a little bit of a clue of the storyline of what's going on. So last week, the staff was called the staff with which you struck the Nile. Remember? So that brought to mind God's judgment against Egypt for their sins. So we knew that God was about to bring judgment down upon Israel. Surprisingly, he doesn't by his great kindness. But at other times, this staff is meant to be a symbol of Israel's blessing, right? So that staff was raised at the parting of the Red Sea, and God blessed his people and made a way for them and saved them. And so the last time that we read about this title for the staff of Moses was back in Exodus chapter 4, verse 20. And it's here where Moses is leaving the wilderness. Remember, he just saw the burning bush, and God gave him the commands to go. And he says, take up the staff of God in your hand and go to Egypt. I basically go into warfare, head back to Egypt with the staff of God, which indicates to us, I think, the plan that God is going to fight on behalf of his people. And by his hand, he will save them and give victory over their enemies. And so this is the plan. Joshua, choose some dudes. You go fight. I'm going to stand on the hill over there, the top of the hill with the staff in my hand, and we'll see how the Lord will provide for us. So verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now, this is interesting because Moses does also choose some guys to go with him. Aaron, we know, remember, he is Moses' brother. He was the mouthpiece of Moses before Pharaoh. And and from him would come, uh, he'd be the first high priest, and from him would come the Levitical tribe. All of those men that would give their lives to sacrificing on behalf of the people before God to cleanse them and atone for their sins. The other man, her, is a brand new character in this. He, as we know from Josephus, uh, who was a Jewish historian, her was married to Miriam, Moses and Aaron's sister. And so you've got Moses and Aaron and their brother-in-law going up on this hill. But also in that, we know that he is, her, is from the same lineage of Judah. He is from the tribe of Judah. That same lineage will come all the kings of Israel, David, Solomon, Jesus. And so what we have is a prophet, a priest, and a king all going together on this hill with the staff of God as Joshua is leading the men in this valley below. 
And so the war begins. And verse 11 explains that whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Let's pause there for a minute. This, so, so what we have here, this prevailing of Israel, prevailing of Amalek, it was more than likely something that Moses, Moses probably noticed happened. All right, we have no indication from the text that God told Moses this would happen. God doesn't say, hey, when you lift your hands, Israel will prevail. When you lower them, they won't. It's probably something that he noticed happened. So as Moses goes and he holds the staff of God in his hands outstretched before the Lord, as he done previously when the waters parted, as he does this, God gives victory to his people. God strengthens Israel fighting in the valley below and they prevail against Amalek. But as Moses got tired, his hands sank, right? You ever try to like, Raise your hands in like worship songs and you're like, oh, I'm done. I can't. Oh, man, right? You get some strength back and you're like, I'm back, Lord, right? Uh, in the same way, this is what happens. So as Moses gets tired, his hands sink and, and he notices when this happens that Israel quits winning the war. They quit prevailing. All of a sudden, Amalek is now prevailing over them. And he's like, what is happening here? And so what, what, what we have going on in this doctrinally is something that we refer to as the doctrine of concurrence. Now, if this is a new term to you, you can write it down, concurrence. Uh, concurrence is something that we mentioned before, but it's been a few weeks, and so it's a great refresher from us actually in this text. And the doctrine of concurrence is helpful for us to understand because as we're reading this story from it, we might be prone to deducing If all that we have is this text alone, we had no rest of the Bible, we might think from it that what is happening here is that God is dependent upon Moses, right? That maybe God is limited by Moses' ability to be strong and to keep his hands in the air, right? We talked about this a little bit last week, like God wants to help, but, but Moses needs to add in his strength and then God will bring the victory, And if this was the only story that we had in the Bible, that might seem at first read kind of like a plausible conclusion, right? God must be dependent upon Moses' hands raised in the air so that Joshua can win the battle in the valley below. But as we have the whole rest of the Bible, we should test that against what does the Bible actually say, right? What we know from God's word Is God dependent upon anyone? No. God, simply from the fact that he is God, who made everything by the word of his power, is dependent on no one and nothing. If he was hungry, he would not tell you. If he was thirsty, he would not ask for your help. He, by the simple fact that he is God, does not need us in order to accomplish his will, purposes, and plans. Not only that, but we also know that he has ordained all things, that he knows all things from before the foundations of the world, and that all things are working together for his glory to accomplish his plans and purposes. So God not only knew that this battle would come, but he knew that it would transpire and how everything would go down from before the foundations of the world were laid. So he's not watching this battle saying, oh no, I hope Moses just raises his hands. Be strong enough, Moses, please. I want to save you, but I can't. This is not what we have going on. 
No, friends, he's not an innocent bystander just praying and hoping and wondering that Moses will have enough faith or maybe enough strength so that God can do what he wants to do. And if that was the case, Moses would be God and God would not be God. No, if he wanted to, God could have just sent fire down from heaven and blasted every single one of the Amalekites in a moment's notice. God could have gathered up his thoughts about these people back up into himself and they would have disappeared back into dust from which they had came. And so God is meticulously allowing this battle to take place. And he has ordained that Israel would prevail over Amalek as Moses stands. And he is the one who gives Moses the strength to stand. And he is the one who gives the Israelites the fight to win. So if there is going to be any victory in this battle for God's people, it will only come as God provides and works in his people, strengthening them for the work that he has called them to do. And so the doctrine of concurrence is helpful for us to know because it helps us correctly reflect upon how God works in the world that he has created, like in, in our world. Um, because uh, we know that from Scripture, this doctrine of concurrence is very helpful, that God cooperates, he works with his people, and through his people, he accomplishes his purposes and plans. But not a single one of his purposes and plans will go unfulfilled or unmet. Everything that he has ordained will come to pass. But he who has ordained the ends ordains the means by which those ends occur. Right? And again, this is really helpful for us to understand as we're looking at this, because what we see is not that God needed Moses to do this. Rather, we see God working through Moses and through Joshua and the Israelites down there in the valley to accomplish all of his purposes and plans. Now, again, not because God needs Moses. It's not because God needs you and I to do things. Rather, he delights in working through us as his people. This is the means by which he does these things. So as we pray for one another and God heals people, it's in the praying that God works. Now, could God heal apart from you praying? Yes and amen, he could. But normally, what is the rhythm that he has given us of how this happens? We pray as God's people and God provides. We pray for someone's salvation. We share our lives in the gospel with them. And then guess what? God works a miracle in their heart and saves them. So God has chosen in his ordination of all things to use us as his people, not because he needs us. No, no, no. He does not need you. He loves you and loves empowering you to accomplish the things that he has called you to do. And that distinction is, doesn't, might not sound like a lot, but it is a polar opposite planet from the God of the Bible and, and, uh, and a made up God that is really a weak and emaciated God. And so that's what we have here. Moses has a task to do. He has good works to accomplish. Just as Joshua and the boys have good works to accomplish, fighting Amalek. So God empowers them and they will win the battle and God will be praised as a result of everything that happens. So Moses, his arms are stretched out to the Lord with the staff of the Lord raised over his hands. And as he does so, God's people experience victory. But as he lowers him, as he gets tired, we see that Israel begins to lose ground. They start to lose the battle, which is a problem. Right, because Moses is an old man at this point. And even if he wasn't, how long can you lift your hands? Even the strongest among us, not a whole day. So we see a problem. So verse 12 tells us that Moses' hands grew weary. Literally, they grew heavy. So, so here's the plan. Aaron and her, right there with him up on the hill. So, so they, uh, they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. 
And then for the whole rest of that day, Aaron and her hold up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And I love that this, this is in here that Moses' hands grew weary and that he needed his brother and his brother-in-law to get him a rock and then to sit with him and hold up his weary hands so that we have Moses, the prophet, and Aaron, the priest, and Hur from the kingly line of Judah, a prophet, a priest, and king, working together to bring about God's salvation of his people in the battlefield, making us long, of course, for the true and better prophet, priest, and king who would bring about God's salvation over our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death, through his incarnation, perfect life, substitutionary death, and bodily resurrection. So you see, this is a beautiful scene. And as we're reading it, I also want us to pause and think about, uh, about Moses writing this entire event down, recording it for us as God told him to. And what do we see in here? Do we see a man who is very strong and capable? Not at all. Instead, we see a man who is very weak, He could not help God's people on his own, and he needed others to help him do what he could not do on his own, which is something that our culture does not value. Am I right? Our culture values self-dependence, self-sufficiency, strength. You can do it. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps and just do it. Man, it's exhausting, isn't it? And, And yet this is not what God calls us to do as his people. Not at all. And I love this scene because it reminds us that Moses was not strong enough to do what God was calling him to do on his own. He could not. He couldn't bear the weight of it. He needed these other men to help him in his weakness. So this whole scene just screams to us. This is not by Moses' might and power that God provides for his people. No, the Lord is not dependent on Moses. No, no, no. He is the God who fights for Israel and he is empowering them to win the battle. And then as we're reflecting on these eight verses that explain to us kind of this first battle, you know, I think the most fascinating thing is that the main emphasis is not on the battlefield at all. You know what I mean? We don't know how many Amalekites died. We don't know uh, any of the tactics involved. We know nothing. All of the attention of this text is not in the valley, but is up on the hill where the help of the Lord comes from. And we see that God does give the victory. Verse 13, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek, meaning the Amaleks were made weak and prostrated, which is interesting because Moses' arms were made weak, but the Lord empowered them. But they were made weak, and the Lord did not empower them. (laughs) They destroyed them. So Joshua overwhelmed him, utterly defeating them, Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord, verse 14, said to Moses, write this as, as a memorial in a book. And he did. Which is, why, which is why we have it. You know what I mean? It's like, write it in a book. Okay. And now we have it. Uh, praise God. Uh, there it is. And recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Now, it's important to note as well, this blotting out of Amalek doesn't happen at this exact moment. Uh, Amalek is defeated, laid low, of course, but not yet utterly wiped off the face of the planet. This will happen, uh, but the memory of them is still around, right? Like in this book. Like as a people, they are no more, but their name is here forever as a testimony of how the Lord fought and saved his people from their evil hands. And then verse 15, uh, Moses built an altar. He worshiped, thanking God for the victory that just happened, just as his forefathers in the faith had done in the book of Genesis, for example, when the Lord saved them from various enemies, they, they built altars and worshiped and praised God. And, and we see that Moses called the name of it in Hebrew, Jehovah Nissi. The Lord, my banner. 
saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, which in this moment is an, is an indictment against Amalek because they place their hands on the people of God. And, and so what we see, therefore, is the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Or as Matthew Henry explains, whoever makes war with the lamb, the lamb will overcome them. There's a lot of good things to meditate on there. We have a lot more text, but, but I want to pause and consider a moment on this beautiful phrase, the Lord is my banner. I, I, this is what I named our sermon for today, and it was, um, it was important, uh, important enough for me to just pause for a moment and reflect on it. Now, Jehovah Nissi is a compound word in the Hebrew. Jehovah Nissi. And as we know, banners, uh, and that word Nissi is a banner, of course, but, but as we know, banners are symbols used to declare allegiance, right? So think about knights in King Arthur days, right? Like the, out there with their, their big flags. Uh, or think about even modern day, you've got your, your hockey team or your soccer team and you, you wear their emblems and, and, and the, the flags may be emblazoned with, with their logos. And people make banners and flags for various reasons, right? Convoys. Uh, political, social ideologies, uh, all these things are identification markers. And what they do is for us, they help us declare our allegiances, right? They remind us who we are and what we stand for. So what does it mean that Israel is the Lord's banner? Well, I think immediately in the text, it refers specifically to this battle, right? Moses is on the hill. The staff of God is lifted over his people like a banner, And it's through this staff being lifted that God is fighting on behalf of his people. So this rod then becomes a symbol of God's presence and power with his people. God is their banner. And then moving forward as they walk through the battlefields and eventually enter into the promised land, they can rest assured that they will have victory because God goes before them and is with them, that God fights for his people. So this day is a visible reminder of that, that in the battles ahead, they would remember. Do you remember what the Lord did to Amalek? The Lord will do that for us. He will fight for us. He is the banner over us, our perpetual protector. Thus, it is the Lord who is the warrior king who rises into battle. This warrior man, as Moses and as Pastor Matt sang about in Exodus 15. And the Lord is Israel's banner, reminding them that they live under his protection and under his power. And that they fight in the strength that he provides them. Thus, it is not by their strength or their might that they will have victory. But it's in looking to the Lord that they will have victory. Not only that, but this imagery of a banner will keep coming up throughout the rest of the Bible at really beautiful moments. Like in Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, we see in Isaiah chapter 11 this, uh, this promise that there would come this idyllic king who would come. He would be a righteous branch from the stump of Jesse through the line of David. And that this king would have the spirit of the Lord on him. And he would judge with equity and with righteousness. And he would establish his kingdom. And as he does does so, we see the extent of his peace that he, as he's leading and guiding and ruling over the world, there is no more war. There are no more battles between anyone. Death is no more in the human realm. And even in the animal realm, lions are hanging out with fattened calves, not eating them. Uh, right? And, and, and lion, uh, wolves are laying down next to, uh, next to uh, lambs. There's this picture of no more death. And all of this happens on the mountain of the Lord. So you can write that down for when we're in Exodus 19, the mountain of the Lord. So we're almost there. And that day, Isaiah 11.10 explains this root of Jesse, this king, this idyllic king, he will stand as a signal 
for the nations. A signal for the nations. But that word signal is actually the, the word nace or banner. Which is pretty cool. It's the same word from Exodus 17. The Lord is our banner. When this idyllic Davidic king in the line of David who would rule and reign over all things and all of his enemies would be crushed under his feet, this king would be our banner as he is raised up for the peoples. And the nations would inquire of this root of Jesse and his resting place would be glorious. So as this idyllic king, therefore, is lifted up as a banner, the remnant of God's people will be brought to him and they will enter into his rest and under his protection as his kingdom advances upon the earth. And I know your mind is already running there that uh, as it ought because we know who is this root of Jesse, this idyllic king. We know, yes, we know this king will be lifted up. And as he's lifted up the first time as our substitute, suffering under the righteous wrath of God the Father, dying on the cross in our place, he will die. And then three days later, he'll be raised up again and will continue to be the banner of God, raising up and drawing all men to himself. Thus, Jesus is the banner of the Lord, the Lord who fights for his people, this idyllic king who's raised up, ushering in the very kingdom of God and conquering over all of his enemies and saving his people. He is a place of rest for the weary. And he's beckoning you today to come to him and to experience salvation. For he has fought your greatest enemy, Satan's sin and self, and he has stood condemned in your place, suffering under the righteous wrath of God the Father against your many sins, and he has won the battle so that you might be forgiven and adopted into his family. And then as his son or daughter, you might be empowered to walk through the rest of your days in the strength of his power as he equips you and empowers you to accomplish the good works that he is predestined for you to walk in. But it all starts here. It all starts with the knowledge that from birth and by nature, we're reading this story, we might, we might readily look at this story and be like, I'm like Israel, I'm fighting with the Lord, I'm like Moses, I just need to be stronger. And yet first and foremost, as Christians, when we read this, who should we firstly identify with? Amalek. We, we, we are like the Amalekites. See, the Bible explains that from birth and by nature, you and I are not born in this world spiritually neutral. Rather, we are born in this world spiritually enemies against God. Worse than that, we worship the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. We do not like the light of the good news of the gospel of Christ. In fact, we hate it. We rebel against it, and we want nothing to do with it. Instead, we give all of our days to creating false gods and worshiping them, things that promise big things for us and yet can't provide anything that they promise. We create idols, and our hearts are idol factories. We just create things to worship because we are created to worship the only true and living God, but we don't. Not only that, we've been blinded by Satan so that we cannot see and we cannot be saved. We are dead in our sins and unable to save ourselves, and we are without hope. Not only that, but we have declared war on the Lord. We have declared war on the sovereign God of the universe. Like, who's going to win that battle? Us? No way. And like the Amalekites, all that we deserve before God is his unending judgment. Not only that, but we deserve to have our names blotted out and remembered 
no more for forever. And yet, and yet, by God's grace, he has written your name in a different book, one that it can never be blotted out from. You who deserve his judgment, you who deserve wrath for your many sins and making war against God, he makes you righteous and calls you his son or daughter. You who was his enemy, he transfers you into his family by grace and through faith in Jesus alone. Thus, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is good news for you. You, like the Amalekites, deserve nothing before God except your judgment and then to have your name blotted out for forever where for all of eternity future, you will suffer under the righteous wrath of God forever. But God has made a way for you who deserve his judgment to be declared forgiven. And it's not by trying harder or being better or just mustering up enough strength or enough faith in your life. Rather, it is by trusting that you are very weak and you cannot save yourself. And you need another to do that for you. You cannot live the life you ought to live that pleases God. And you deserve to spend eternity facing his judgment. And yet Christ Jesus, God the Son, laid humanity alongside divinity and stepped into time to live the life you should have lived and then to take all of the Father's judgment upon you. And yet his name also was not blotted out because of it. Isn't that good news? Rather, he now has the name, the only name given under heaven by which we can be saved. See, friend, if you're here and you're curious, how can I have a right relationship with God? It is not by you trying harder and being better and being stronger. It's not... We don't have a God who just needs you to just be a little bit stronger and then he can do the things that he wants to do in the world. No, friend, you are weak. And you are dependent upon him for everything. Friend, and that is good news because you don't have to put on this, this mask of I've got all this worked out and I'm great on my own. Because you're not. The fact that you need Jesus and his righteousness speaks to the fact that you don't. And yet how easy it is for come to come around other people and be like, oh, I got this, life is great, I'm awesome. Really? Doubtful. Doubtful. If you're as weak as me, doubtful. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're a lot stronger than me. Uh, I'm an incredibly weak man. Man, I'm dependent on God's kindness and mercy. I would forget the gospel in a moment were it not for his kindness. I would run away from him if I could. And yet by grace and through his mercy, he holds fast to me when I would run from him. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. So, Christian, Christ is our banner. And he has been lifted up so that countless millions of men and women from every nation, tribe, and tongue can believe upon him and turn by faith away from idols and believe upon him. Which brings us to our next section of scripture, Exodus 18, 1 to 12. And if you're reading your Bible, uh, you come across a name that you haven't seen in a very long time. And if you've never read the book of Exodus, you've never seen this name. It's the name Jethro. I'm going to date myself a little bit, but I'm not talking about Jethro Bodine, uh, Beverly Hillbillies, you know, uh, poor mountaineer who barely kept his family fed. But then one day he was shooting at some food and up from the ground came a bubbling crude oil, that is. Texas tea, black gold. This is not the Jethro we're talking about. Uh, this Jethro 
Uh, though I love that show. This Jethro is uh, Moses' father-in-law. Now, we remember that when Moses fled from Egypt, he used his strength and he provided for this beautiful girl that he would later marry, this girl named Zipporah. And the last time that we saw Zipporah, Moses' wife, um, was as they were on their way to Egypt and God almost killed Moses. Do you remember that? And so at the last minute, Zipporah takes a flint knife, circumcises their son in the desert, touches her husband, Moses' foot with the blood of it, and God doesn't kill him. Now, if you're like, man, how did you guys preach through that? You can uh, check out online. Uh, there, is a, there is a surprisingly really edifying uh, portion of scripture, um, but, but we haven't read or heard about Zipporah ever since this point. But what we know from the text is that apparently she went and lived back at her father's house, probably for safety reasons, uh, but also probably because Moses was very busy. Like Moses is like meeting with the elders of Israel and he's going, he's confronting Pharaoh. And like he's like a lot of crazy things happen. And as a dad, I can understand I would be a little divided, you know, if I'm trying to be used by God to help save God's people. And I don't know how and I just have the staff. And then I'm also trying to worry about like bedtime routines. All right. Like, like that would be a little hard, a little hard. So Zipporah stays uh, with her father-in-law, but now she's about to be reunited. And so that's what we see uh, in verses uh, one to three. So Jethro, the priest of Midian, we see Moses' father-in-law, he heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And now Jethro was Moses' father-in-law. He he had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he he had sent her home, along with her two sons. And I want to pause right there because what we're about to see is Moses is going to give emphasis to two things. So the first thing that he's going to give an emphasis to is the names of his sons. We're going to see that in verses 3 and 4. And then secondly, we're going to see the conversation with Jethro that follows, verses 5 to 10. So the name of his sons is the very first thing that we see, and their names are incredibly important. They help remind us of the storyline thus far. So the first, uh, the name of the first one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in the land of foreign land. And Gershom sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for sojourner. Your Bible might have a little note that says that in the bottom. And then the name of the other, Eliezer, he said, uh, for the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So Eliezer means my God is help. Now, those are strong names. Uh, if you're having a baby sometime soon, those would be strong names. I don't know if you got a name. Uh, those are strong names. Eliezer, Gershom, uh, strong names. Uh, write that down. Uh, and, and so Moses, he emphasized in this uh, whole conversation uh, with, uh, that, that unfolds is really emphasizing the conversation that happens with Jethro. We'll see very little actually about his wife and his boys other than his boy's name. Like we don't even, you might assume some like hallmark version like, oh, my wife. Like that doesn't happen in the text. Uh, that's not Moses' intention of what he's letting us know on various things. And so Moses is very intentional in what he tells us. So let's see what he does tell us. Verse five. So Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, he came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. Which is a common greeting in the day where you'd go out and you'd meet them and bring them in. Kind of in the same way if somebody like is coming over for dinner, you meet them at the door. Like you walk over, you meet them, and you're like, welcome to our home. Would you like something to drink? Right? In the same way, this is what they would do at this time. They would go outside of the city and welcome them back in. Right? You don't yell at them. I got my feet up. Come on in. Like you go get them, bring them in. <clears throat> and that's what Moses does. He shows great respect for his father-in-law. Brothers, show great respect for your father-in-law. And, and they asked each other of their welfare and then went into the tent. 
Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And look at the response of Jethro. Let's notice it together. Verse nine. And Jethro rejoiced, if you're a circler or underliner in your Bible, rejoice over all the good the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. So Jethro rejoiced for that. So he heard Moses and understood him and rejoiced. Verse 10, Jethro blessed. He says, blessed be the name of the Lord. So he, he blesses the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. So the second one there is he's blessing, he's praising God. So he blesses him, he kneels down before the Lord, and with his own tongue now, Jethro praises God that he has delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians, and then by Moses' ministry that the Lord has delivered his people from under the hand of the Egyptians. So it's good that Moses was delivered, and it's good that the people were delivered. And then he keeps going. Look at, uh, thirdly, we're going to see Jethro's profession of what he now believes to be true about God. Verse 11. Now, he says, I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. And then right after this, what we have is a really difficult sentence to translate into English. Uh, Jethro basically is saying here, "I, I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this thing, this whole affair, they dealt arrogantly, they dealt proudly, which is either referring to the Egyptians or to the false gods of the Egyptians, or maybe both. And yet what he's saying is that in this, God was above them. God's greater than them. And that doesn't come through very well in the English translations out of the Hebrew. Uh, So you can check it out for yourself, blueletterbible.org. You don't have to have a seminary degree to go onto the World Wide Web. Uh, And you can very clearly see all this for yourself. Um, And so from all of this, Jethro is very convinced from seeing everything before him and hearing all that God has done, that God is greater. And then verse 12. We see that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So then we see, fourthly, he worships God, which is a fitting conclusion to everything that we've seen thus far. He brings burnt offerings and sacrifices, and he has communion with God and communion with God's people over a meal, celebrating the fact that they now have communion. And I think something is really cool is happening in this entire scene uh, with Jethro that might go unnoticed by us if we don't pause and consider something really, uh, really cool for a moment. And it's this. We haven't mentioned it before, but in Genesis chapter 25, after Sarah's death, Abraham marries a woman named Keturah. And from that marriage, one of their sons was named Midian. And before Abraham dies, he gets all the sons that are not Isaac, gives them lots of good gifts and sends them away so that they don't, they're not fighting between any of those brothers and Isaac. And right here in Exodus 18, we see one of those descendants of Abraham, someone from the tribe of Midian, hearing about God's salvation of his people, professing faith, and making sacrifices with God's people and eating with them. This is like a family reunion. So we just had a family fight, now we're having a family reunion, it's a good thing. So, so to pick up on a discussion a couple of moments ago, what we see in this is the banner of the Lord is raised. And God is using this banner, the salvation of his people, as a proclamation to the nations of God's strength. And I believe in a small way, here in Exodus 18, God is beginning to call out his remnant from the nations fulfilling what we see happen in Isaiah chapter 11 and then ultimately in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ Jesus in a much fuller way. Which then brings us to our last section, 
<clears throat> Exodus 18, 13 to 27, and this is Jethro's advice. So we read, uh, the next day Moses sat to judge the people, meaning he helped settle disputes that they might know how to apply the law of God, the Bible, into their lives as he governed over them. And the people stood around Moses from morning until evening, which is a really long day. Can you imagine you and I have a dispute and we have to go stand and wait in a long line all day long just to see Moses and have him help with our dispute? Can you imagine that? Somebody like you're really angry with me, you have a dispute with, you got to stand all day with him. Like that, that would be, that would be terrible punishment. You're like, never mind. Let's just, let's just call this a day and go home. Uh, but when, when Moses' father-in-law, he sees all this that is going on, uh, on all that Moses is doing for the people, verse 14, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? Again, if you're an underlying or, or a circler, why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Basically, he says, what are you doing? There's two plus million people here and you're the only one that's helping do all of this? And there's 15. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God, when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And then on hearing this, verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. Circle that. It's too heavy for you. Same phrase we see used beforehand. The staff of God, his hands fall. His hands were too heavy. This thing is too heavy. Bringing the law, the law of God to bear in the lives of all these people is too heavy of a thing for you to carry on your own. So just as Moses wasn't able to raise the rod of God on the area on his own, he isn't able to bear under the weight of this alone either. It's not good for Moses. It's not good for the people. It's unbearable. It's too heavy. He needs to share the load. But Jethro doesn't just lob a grenade. You know, like some people, they just like, and they just like throw and just, and they go, later suckers. Uh, that, that's not what Jethro does. He, he tells about how this is not a good idea, but then he brings in a plan of how to help this be much better. And so Jethro begins by saying all the things that Moses is doing, the things he ought to keep doing. So verse 19, he says, now obey my voice. I'll give you advice and God be with you. You shall, one, represent the people before God. Yeah, yes and amen, keep it up. Secondly, bring their cases to God. Yep. Verse 20, third, you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws. Yeah. Fourthly, make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. So yes and amen. Keep at it, Moses. Good job. Do the work you're doing. Yes and amen. Do that. Make known from them, from the law of God, what they must do. This is not just a theological thing, but God gives you the practical applications in your life. Help tease out the law of God in the lives of the people. So that's the plan. But now here's the plan of how he shares the load. Verse 21. Moreover, Look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it'll be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you'll be able to endure and all this people will also go to their place in peace. Basically, it'll be good for you. It'll be very good for them. And, and whereas we, we don't know, remember how Joshua chose all those men that would go with him to go fight? Like we don't know. 
Here we see four things that Moses ought to do in choosing the kind of men. So firstly, we see from this, they are to be able men, right? Strong, mighty, efficient men. Not any kind of man would do, but an able man, a man with a warlike valor. They need to be strong dudes because they are going to help apply the law of God into the hearts of people's lives. And you cannot be a weak man and do that because you will not say what they most need to hear because you will be too afraid and you will not do it. And so he says, don't choose men like that. Choose strong, capable, warrior-like men who aren't afraid of danger. You want able men. Secondly, you want men who fear God. You're looking for a man who reveres God, who walks in the fear of the Lord and is not afraid of people. In the court of popular opinion, he doesn't care what people think. He cares what the Lord thinks. And he applies God's word into people's lives. Can you imagine if you had a judge who was just so afraid of people all the time? They're like, I don't know what to do. I just, it's like nailing jello to a wall. You know what I mean? That'd be terrible. That'd be terrible. Thirdly, you need men who are trustworthy, men of truth, men who are stable and faithful and reliable, who will hold on to the truth of God, the judgments of God, the true doctrine. They're not men who are swayed, again, by popular opinion. They are firm in God's truth. They are immovable and dependent and trustworthy on it. They are trustworthy men, men of truth. Fourthly, they are men who hate a bribe. Don't look for men who love money, who have money in their hearts, but rather find men who hate unjust gain and profit. Now, it doesn't mean that these guys can't have money, but it is a directive to ensure that they don't love money more than they love the truth of God and more than they love the word of God. Find men, he's saying, who can't be bought off, right? Who make judgments depending on who's lining their pockets. Right? Moses needs to find men like this, men who can be used by God to uphold God's truth, to help shepherd God's people as they apply God's word into various situations. And if there's a situation that gets too difficult, they might need more help. They have others around them who can help with that. And walking through these four things, did you notice any similarities with any lists like this that we have in the New Testament? You're like, ding, ding, ding. Yes, I did. Uh, this is the same qualifications we actually have for elders pastors, the office of, of pastor elder in, uh, in the New Testament, able men who fear God, who are trustworthy, who are not lovers of money. For further study of that coming off spring break, if any students want to have more work, uh, you can do 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Peter 5, and Titus, and you can see how God has directed his people to be taken care of. Specifically, it's by this. Look for godly men who have a desire to shepherd and lead God's people so that God's people might know his word and flourish as his people. They are to be men who are able to teach and they are to have the kind of character qualities listed in Exodus chapter 18. Now, they don't need to preach on a Sunday. They didn't say that in Exodus 18, but that's that's in other parts of scripture. They don't need to preach on a Sunday. They do need to know God's word. They do know how to teach it and apply it into people's lives. And they need to have a desire to shepherd people. This section also distinctly reminds me of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 to 2, where Paul writes to his younger protege, Timothy, and he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who are able to teach others also. And so Paul tells Timothy to do this because like Moses, Paul has found that he cannot carry the weight of it alone, and if he wants to endure, he needs to share the load. So the weight of ministry is not only carried by one man or by three men. Rather, pastors ought to be about the business of equipping and training men who have a desire to be raised up to bear the load of what God's doing in their local church. 
And that's what we're praying for, actually, as your pastors, that God would raise up men like this to serve our church, to help carry this burden. But we also want to be a church that helps plant other healthy churches. And to do that, we need God to raise up a lot of uh, future pastors for this task, and we want to help equip them and send them with teams of men and women who can help carry that load as well, and that are committed to helping plant churches, that plant churches, that plant churches. And sadly, one of, the, one of the things that we have noticed, isn't it, in these last couple of years, is that when men fail to be mighty, efficient men who walk in the fear of the Lord and not people, when, when men are not trustworthy and stable, but flimsy and flip-floppy and soft, when men take bribes from pharmaceutical companies, terrible and evil consequences are a result of that. Amen? You see a society that is broken and messed up in a billion ways, and the buck stops with men not being men and not standing up for the truth. Brothers, that is a hard word, man, but it's true and it's good. And this is what what happens. Tyrants go uncontested and undefeated. People suffer when men fail to lead well, to do the things that God has called them to do. Things go terribly wrong. And it would be the exact same for Israel if these men didn't uphold God's words. If these men were loose in applying God's words, things would go wrong. These people would abound in sinfulness and bring upon themselves the judgment of God. So these men needed to be able men, strong men, able to apply the word of God into people's lives, not letting them know what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. And they don't need to have money in their hearts, lest they start making decisions what is the best outcome for them, financially speaking. You know, don't rock the boat because then these people might leave and financially, oh, so we can't say anything definitive about anything. Give me a break, man. No, no. These men are supposed to be stalwart, strong, competent men who fear the Lord, which produces in them, strangely enough, incredible humbleness because they know that this is not their word, it's God's word. They're simply the messenger boy. They're heralding God's words. It's like, it's like if one of my kids, I tell them to go tell my other kid that it's time for, for dinner. Then they run upstairs and they're like, hey, it's dinner time. Like, I'm not coming. Not coming. Like, no, no, no. Dad said. You ever had that happen in your head? Dad said. You got to come. They're, they are using borrowed authority. It is not their own. It's, oh, dad said. I better, I better come. In the same way, this is all the pastors do. We say, listen, dad said, I don't know, dad, dad said, let's just do what dad said. Let's do what dad said. And, and they need to be, you need to be strong in doing that. You need to be strong in doing that. And brothers, this is a good moment to encourage you because our church, like Israel, especially because we are so young and fragile, we need you, brothers, to be these kind of men. If we are going to continue to exist as a church for decades ahead, right now we're like a, we're a 16-month-old church. We're like my little daughter who's up here during the first set of singing, like twirling around and still needing her diaper changed. That's like a great picture of where we're at as a church, right? And so you might not desire to be a pastor, brothers, but as a church member, we need your help to lay a solid foundation of faithfulness that we can build upon for decades of ministry ahead. In the days ahead, there are going to be many temptations for us to bow down to the culture around us, to allow them to tell us when we can gather and when we can't what to believe, what not to believe, how to speak about human sexuality and how we can't. And if we want to be a church that stands firmly upon God's word and says, no, dad says, 
And if we are committed to planting healthy churches that plant healthy churches, we need you, brothers, to be strong men. We need you to stand on God's word, his truth, to let it be an anchor for your soul and for your family and for, your, for, your, uh, for our church family. We need you to be strong, efficient, and mighty men as we apply God's word in the lives around us that God has called us to shepherd so that they might flourish. Single brothers, single brothers, our church needs you to be these men. Married brothers, your wives need you to be these kind of men. Those of you with kids, they need you to be this kind of man, a humble, a strong man who goes out of your way to serve others. Men who are weak and dependent upon God in all things. Men who know God's word and strive to apply it into your life and life of your family and life of others around you. Your daughters need to learn how to grow up to be a godly woman from you, brother. Your boys need to learn how to grow up to be godly men. Brothers, lead your families to love God's word, to rejoice in him, to worship him, to be in fellowship with other believers. And brothers, we need you to set an example for our church in how to do this. We need you to shepherd one another. We need you to bear one another's burdens. We need you to give your strength to serving people around you so that they can flourish. And sisters, we need you as well. I don't have to say much to you. The women of the trails are a constant source of joy for me as I see the various ways that that you speak into one another's lives. I'm like, man, you girls are killing it. I see you on social media. I see how you serve. I see how you provide. I see how you already are bearing one another's burdens, giving up your own time to serve and take care of others. So I would just say to you, sisters, keep it up. As you shepherd the women around you and you exhort the brothers and sisters in your small groups and around dinner tables, we need you, sisters, to be strong women, grounded in God's word, not easily swayed by our culture, but rather firmly rooted in God's unchanging and inerrant word. Let this be your rule of life for all of life and all of godliness. Don't progress. Don't move beyond it. Dig deep into God's word. Counsel one another according to God's word. Pray for one another. And if you have kids, Pray for them as well and help teach, our, help teach your young boys how to grow up to be godly men and teach your young daughters how to grow up to be godly women, grounding them in the truths of scripture so they may not be swayed by the culture around them or by false teachers who would strive to lead them away after false gospels. Give yourselves to nourishing life, physical and spiritual, in those around you. Then we get to the end. Moses said, verse 24, Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. He chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and they judged the people at all times. In any hard case, they brought to Moses, but a small matter, they decided themselves, and Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went to his own country. With that, we conclude this section of Exodus, section one. But before wrapping up, I have three quick bullets, and then we're done. First, in seeing God's salvation of Israel from Amalek, let us remember, brother and sister, that we have an enemy that we fight every day. We fight. Our flesh, man, just lingering. We fight our own flesh, we fight Satan, we fight the world. In our fight against indwelling sin, we, like Israel, are unable to win these battles on our own. We are in desperate need of God's grace. Cry out to the Lord and he will sustain you. Look to the Lord in your battles. Secondly, weakness is the way. It's interesting that Moses in both of these texts was not strong enough or able enough to do what God was calling him on his own. It's interesting he didn't pretend to have enough strength to do it on his own. In our lives, we can assume that a true mark of mature Christianity is that you depend on other people less and less and less as you grow. And there could not be anything that is further from the truth. 
as Christians, as we grow, we grow more dependent, actually, on one another. See, in our weakness, Christ is strong. J.I. Packer, one of my favorite theologians, before he died, he wrote, the weaker we feel, the harder we lean. And the harder we lean, the more we grow spiritually. See, there's a beauty in knowing that you aren't strong enough and that you don't have to pretend to be. You don't have to pretend to be. You don't need to fake it till you make it. You need to readily admit your dependence upon Jesus and one another. And we know that you and I aren't Moses, but a good application question might be, who is holding up your arms when you don't have strength? Or to put it a different way, who has God given you to help you persevere in the things he's called you to do? See, in our world, we're prone to doing everything on our own and not wanting or needing help. And even when we do help, we, we, we don't, we, or when we need it, we don't know how to ask for it. Brother and sister, you weren't meant to go on this road alone, so don't. God has given you brothers and sisters to help carry the load for you. Thirdly, how do we build that kind of culture? We pursue Christ together with our Bibles open. There is strength in community. Don't go it alone. Joshua got an army and they went together into battle and, and he needed all of them. Moses went to, to stand on this hill. He took these men with him. There's a beautiful picture here of the people of God participating together. And as a church, this is our aim. We want to know other people and be known by other people so that we might see the Lord use one another in our lives. Like when I'm weak, I need you to be strong for me. When you're weak, I can be there for you. Unless I'm also weak, then we'll just call Johnny and he'll be strong for all of us. Uh, just kidding, you can't do that. You're not Jesus. Uh, <laughs> But this is what, this is what we need one another. I almost cried when I looked at you, so I'm not going to look at you again. Uh, we, brothers, need to have other men who know our weaknesses and men who love us and help us in it. Sisters, you need to know other women that know your weaknesses and are committed to you, that love you and will speak truth to you and help hold up your arms when you cannot on your own and who will remind you of good gospel truth. Brothers and sisters, we need one another. And if you're newer to our church and you're like, man, I don't even know how we get involved in, in a place like this. Um, we have small groups that are starting in various parts of the city. We have different Bible studies that are going on. But a great way to also get to know one another is really just invite one another into, into your life. Meet someone and ask them for coffee this week. Get to know them. Hear their story. Ask them how they became a Christian, what they're learning of from God's word, and how God is growing them and maturing them in this season. Um, that would be a great way for us to continue to do that and continue to remember that we are weak, brothers and sisters, utterly dependent on Christ, And by his grace, he's given us one another as well to help hold one another up. So let's do so. Let's pray.